What does it mean to take sin seriously? What does it mean to take God's law, His commandment, His requirements seriously? I think as we consider ourselves this day, as we have already done, we recognize that we all, to one extent or another, have some serious sin problems. But then for us as Christians, how then do we go about dealing with these issues? I think there are several ways that we see in our culture, in our own lives. Perhaps you recognize some, if not all of them, in yourself. I think on the one hand, when we consider our sins, we often respond by thinking, okay, we, we clearly need to make reparations for our sins against God. This can take on many forms of self-improvement, perhaps because of some particular sin, we agree with God to pray for an extra 15 to 20 minutes every day to make some sort of repair for our offense against God. I think this is one way of going about it. Another option that I think is quite prevalent is in understanding our sin, we take it so seriously that the only conclusion is to run from God, to to hide from God, perhaps even as As believers, we would believe that, yes, God certainly saved us in the beginning, but at this point in my Christian walk, there should be some greater level of progress. God must have been expecting a bit more of me at this point. So we would decide that there's no way that God could forgive me, and oftentimes this will end in convincing ourselves that this God that is too holy for us doesn't exist at all. And we would seek to send him out of our presence or flee from his. I think another remedy for this issue that is quite prevalent is just to minimize the requirement of God's law. In fact, we see this in some pretty wild extremes. I recently heard one prominent evangelical preacher suggest that we unhitch ourselves from the God of the Old Testament along with his law. He does not interact with people that way anymore. So, so that's one way of kind of finding solution in this, with this problem of sin. I hope that we can agree that that itself is a problematic solution. And, and yet, I think oftentimes we as conservative, theologically conservative Christians might take approach that's really based on the same thing and just take God's law and lower it just a scotch to something that we can then attain. Oftentimes we think of legalism as an emphasis on God's law, but this really is what legalism is. It's taking God's law and its perfect requirements and just lowering the bar so that with a little bit of effort or a lot of effort, we might find ourselves acceptable before God. I think all of these approaches have a, have a little bit, a little bit of truth to them, but of course the devil or in this case, God is in the details, that God himself doesn't give us these options. And this morning, we come upon one of those passages that perhaps some would want us to unhitch ourselves from. We find this God who has gone on this victorious, albeit violent, rampage 
through the Philistine nations, through their cities, bringing judgment upon them, something that perhaps we can stomach, but then he comes home and strikes his own. One of these passages that we would perhaps say, okay, God, do we really need to take your law and sin this seriously? I mean, are these offenses really that bad? And by our, the end of our time together this morning, I hope the answer for you will be, yes, we do, we must take God's law and our sin that seriously. So as we consider this passage this morning, I want to do so through three scenes, and the first of which is the exodus of the ark. Well, as we come upon our text for this morning, the the first thing that we think about is last week where we saw the ark, uh, if you will, in captivity. And we, we saw that it was the very captivity of the ark that ends up bringing victory for God. The ark in captivity under the hand of the god Dagon, where in captivity, the ark proves to be victorious, literally disarming Dagon and afflicting the Philistines with what Pastor Purcell clearly wants us to understand as hemorrhoids. He said it on several occasions. Um, so that's what we're going to go with uh, this morning. Whatever the case, physical afflictions that would be painful, disgusting, and, and humiliating, the God really does humiliate the god of the nation the gods of the nations he shows himself to be powerful all the while as we saw last week israel is not even in the picture he does this completely on his own and what seems to be his captivity or his exile well if last week we saw the exile of the ark This morning, we see its exodus. We see its return from exile. In fact, right off the bat, we see that the ark has been in exile for seven months, likely to remind us of the ordinance of the law to release captive slaves after seven years. So we get this picture of the ark being in slavery. But it is not merely the Philistines' altruism or law-keeping that causes them to want to send the ark away, is it? I mean, the hand of the Lord has been heavy upon them by way of these plagues that have afflicted the ones that have survived, not to mention those who have lost their lives at the hand of God's presence. And so the leaders of the Philistines do what Pharaoh did at the time of the Exodus. They call the magicians. They call the diviners. They call those who are experts in manipulating the gods. And they say, okay, what what is it that we're to do with this God of Israel? And they they have a plan. These guys are pretty good at placating the divine, and so they they have some answers. One, the ark is to be sent off. And we'll see particularly how it is to be sent off in a moment. But but first we see that they say you you can't send it empty-handed. Reparations do have to be made. A guilt offering must go out with the ark if this God of Israel is to be appeased. Gifts are to go with the ark's exodus, or or plunder, if you will. And the Philistines here are attempting to kill two birds with one, well, golden hemorrhoid, uh, five to be exact. On the one hand, we see this 
some voodoo magic like uh, logic going on here. If you're familiar at all with a voodoo doll, a doll is made in the likeness of a person. And by manipulating that doll, you can bring good or ill to the person that the doll is associated with. Well, a similar thing is going on here that they would make likenesses in the form of these tumors or hemorrhoids along with these mice or rats, and they would send them off. And hopefully the same thing would happen to the plagues, that they would, they would leave the land as these voodoo dolls, if you will, would go along with them. Verse 5 highlights this. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice, that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. So first we find them using this superstitious magic to try to get rid of God's judgment. Well, secondly, the Philistines understand that God also requires some sort of offering in exchange for their offense. And it would seem that gold is a good place to start. Um, five golden tumors, five golden uh, mice or, or rats. Uh, and you have to think that this would be a monetarily a fairly costly gift to send along with uh, the, the ark to make restitution. At my graduation, I received a... Um, one ounce gold coin from a, from a family member. And I have to be honest, uh, I had no idea its value. I thought it looked cool and it was a really nice uh, gift. But, but turns out this one ounce is, you know, depending on which day, somewhere between $1,800 and $2,000 uh, of value. And this very small coin, well, I'm not sure how many of these coins it would take to make a golden hemorrhoid, but I would imagine, I would imagine quite a few. We're talking about a a costly gift that is to be sent with the ark, something that would mean something to the Philistines, something that would cost quite a bit. And yet, it's still a golden hemorrhoid. On one hand, we see that, yeah, this would be worth a lot. On the other hand, we realize just how ridiculous the offering is. What is God to do with a bunch of golden tumors and a bunch of golden rats? I know that's what we want under the Christmas tree this year, but it really does seem like a half-baked idea as we think about it closely. Not only are the Philistines just superstitious, but it would seem that they're just silly and considering what a God would want. Well, in a lot of ways, we can liken this to our own attempts to appease God, to get on God's right side. No matter how costly our attempts at reparation before God might seem to us, at the end of the day, they're golden hemorrhoids, or as the Apostle Paul says, filthy rags. Even our best attempts at righteousness have no value to God. But this is the Philistines' attempt. A bit of superstition mixed with half-baked intention, and off the gift goes. 
to the God of Israel in hopes that it is enough for God to overlook the sin of the Philistines and relent from disaster. Why should you harden your hearts, the diviners write, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after they had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? If we don't quite see the Exodus themes, they make it quite explicit here that the ark really is going with this plunder from the Philistines and it's returning home. Well, at first we see the ark's Exodus. We then see a test from the Philistines. We find out that despite these marvelous gifts that the Philistines have sent with the ark, that the Philistines aren't really even sure that the God of Israel has brought about this calamity. I mean, yes, their God is lying headless and armless in the temple. Anyone who's still alive is stricken with rats and tumors, but they're still curious. I wonder if this could have really come from the ark, from the presence of God. So they, so they devise a test, and a fairly difficult one at that, somewhat akin to uh, the, the test put before God, before the prophets of Baal, where the altar is called to, where God is called to light fire to the altar. To make it a little bit harder, though, we're going to pour water upon it. Well, similarly, we have a, a difficult test made even more difficult. The test is this, that the ark will be placed upon a cart that has never been used before, to be pulled by cows that have not been trained, and it's to go to Beth Shemesh, this Levitical city that is on the border of Israel. And if it goes and does not turn to one side or to the other, we will know that God has done this thing. But you'll notice that there are some peculiar instructions about these animals and this cart. Certainly, as we mentioned, they have not been used before, but they're also milk cows along with calves. Certainly untrained, but also a, a milk cow doesn't leave their calf behind, especially with udders full of milk ready to be given, and the lowing would indicate just that. So they lock up these calves. A, a milk cow would if not just go a little bit crazy, would certainly turn around and look for their young, but not in this case. In this case, we follow the calves straight down the paths. They go beyond or completely opposed to what their basic instincts would be, and this test proves that God really did bring judgment upon the Philistines. You might imagine this convoy in your head, these slow milk cows pulling an ark and a box full of hemorrhoids, and the lords of the Philistines sneaking behind it, watching to see what happens of it. If this is not a picture of our own lives at times, we load our best efforts onto a cart, send it off, to a God that we're sometimes not even sure of, and we'll watch from a distance as we wonder what will happen. Well, this is the scene that we see here. And in this case, the ark returns, this great exodus from captivity. And from an Israelite point of view, as these workers from the field look up, 
they see what we saw just a few chapters before, the ark departing, the glory of God departing, and they look up and they, they see the ark. The glory of God returning to their own homeland. And they rejoice, as they should. They rejoice. I mean, we have to remember that this is not just a sentimental box. This for Israel is the sign of God's presence. When it left, there was no glory in the land. And now that it is returning, the glory of God is returning with it. And so there's, there's this party. There would be great reason for celebration. The Levites take down the ark. They offer these milk cows along with the Philistine gifts and they rejoice. And they celebrate and great festival, for the glory of the Lord has returned to its homeland. A great sign, a great indicator that this God who has gone out and judged the nations, judged our enemies, now returns home. And surely, because of this, this God is for us. It is defeated, it has shamed our enemies, and now it returns home. What a great ending to the story. Of course, that's not the ending at all, is it? We would think that the fortunes are now returning to God's people. God has shown himself providentially powerful, and he's evidenced this by the judgment upon these foreign nations. Our assumption would be that Israel will finally be victorious because God is on their side, and his presence is back within their borders. But it's not what we find. So at first we see the exodus of the ark, and then we see this test. Finally, we see what it is to look at the law. This should be a great celebration. But perhaps this is one of those passages that we would like to unhitch ourselves from. God coming to his own people, and in the midst of the party, we find verse 19. He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 of them. And the people who were just rejoicing mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. This word struck or strike is repeated in this passage, and it's interesting. First, it's a strike upon the Philistines, and now it's a strike upon God's own people. I mean, it's one thing for God to be against our enemies. It's quite another thing for it to seem like God is against his own. And to read that is, is almost too much to take. That the heavy hand of Yahweh that was against the nations has now come and struck his own people. But it's not a surprise to us thus far in 1 Samuel, is it? I mean, God has shown his judgment upon the leaders of Israel, these priests who are called to serve and guard God's holy worship, who do not act according to the law. And it turns out that this problem did not end with Eli's sons, but would seem to extend to the Levites in this city. 
perhaps the thinking was, was simple. God's coming home. He's coming back to Israel. He's clearly for us. He's defeated our enemies. We'll worship him, and, and maybe we can fudge on some of the details. It is a party after all. If you read commentaries on this passage, they'll debate for pages and pages over exactly what the offense was that caused God's judgment. The Hebrew can be translated that they looked upon the ark or they looked into the ark or they looked over the ark. There's some some options here, but whatever the case, our God who was a consuming fire consumed not only milk cows, but 70 men of Beth Shemesh. As we look at the passage, we can find a number of offenses here. And and for us, they might seem rather small. One, these Levites should have known as the ark returned home that immediately the first thing that they should have done is cover it up. It was to be covered, representing God's holiness. Whenever the ark was transported, it was to have a veil around it, a shield to put over it. And this should have been first priority. Again, a recognition that God is holy. In addition, as we look at these sacrifices, the sacrifice of these milk cows, milk cows were not to be sacrificed in this way. It was a call for for males, for male cows, for bulls to be sacrificed for this kind of sacrifice. And certainly no one was supposed to look into the ark, as it seems these men likely did. And there's some irony here. Think about what the ark is holding. What what is within the ark? God's law written on tablets. They look into the ark, they see the law, and the law kills them. Literally 70 of them. And there's a truth to be seen here. This is what it is to take God's law and our sin seriously. To look upon it and to realize that we cannot stand. And they come to this conclusion themselves, don't they? As these men die because of this great sin that perhaps to us doesn't even look like that serious of an offense... Those that are left ask a question that is key to the entire Bible. It is key to our entire lives. Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. This God who is so pure, so other than us, who is a consuming fire. And by the way, that's in the New Testament too. We can't unhitch ourselves from that reality. If if the psalmist is right and he is, if, if God would count iniquity, who of us would stand? Just a few verses prior, they're rejoicing as they see the glory of the Lord returning home. And now the response is, get it out of here. Send it away. They sought to unhitch themselves from God's presence. The problem is, and as we shall find out in the coming weeks, it doesn't work. We can't escape the realities of God's requirements upon us, and our own guilty conscience bears witness to this. And if yours doesn't, that's a whole other problem. 
the reality of God's holiness, his requirement, that he will not be appeased by our best efforts or intentions. They're all just golden hemorrhoids. We cannot rid ourselves of his presence. We can try, but it's not the way to do it. Beloved in the Lord, it's not the way that he wants you (laughs) to go about it. If you want to take sin seriously, if you want to take God's law seriously, you must find one who will stand in your place. It is the only answer. And as we open to the New Testament, we find this one, one who also finds an animal who has never been ridden upon, who marches to his own people, who rejoice and will shortly thereafter end up sending him away. One who does not get lifted up onto a stone of honor, but lifted onto a cross of shame. One who will be judged for all who are willing to take their sins serious enough to realize, save Christ, there's nothing you can do about it. But in Christ, there is one who is willing to do everything. We see this in the Gospels. We see this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Listen to this. We're not avoiding God's presence anymore. We're entering into these holy places by by Christ's blood, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, no longer priest that keeps screwing things up, but a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice, let us draw near, the author of the Hebrews says, with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Who can stand before a holy God? Not you, not me, but Jesus can. Jesus who is righteousness, Jesus who is holiness, but in his mercy is not only righteousness and holiness for himself, But this day is righteousness and holiness for you. And because of that, who can stand before a holy God? By faith, you can. Not nervously, but with confidence, with boldness. Not because you washed yourself up or because you put on some sort of holy veneer, but because by faith, your life is hidden in Christ. And because your life is in Christ, you can stand before God, assured. Our God is holy. His requirement is perfection. And he will not lower his standards. But Jesus has come. He has made a perfect sacrifice. He has appeased the Father. We can spend our time trying to fashion gifts in the form of likeness of golden hemorrhoids, or we can trust in one and eternal God who has taken the form and likeness of sinful man 
and has come that he might redeem us, that he might sanctify us, and that he might present us holy before God. A God who loves you so much this day that he sent his only son. And this does not only apply to the first day of our salvation, but to every day thereafter. As J. Gresham Machen writes, Christ will do everything or he will do nothing. And our only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on his mercy and to trust him for all. And you can trust him. For Jesus on your behalf has been judged. Jesus has been stricken. And this day he calls you to turn from your sin and all your attempts to rid yourself of it and turn to him. For his grace is sufficient. His mercy is good. Trust him and draw near with boldness and confidence to a God God who has not only proven himself holy, but holy for you. May he grant us confidence this day as we draw near to him in grace. Let's pray.